Ukrainians understood both from the Russian occupation of Crimea and from the Russian occupation of Donetsk that Russian occupation would be an end of their lives as they know it. They understood that this would be the end of not just Ukraine as a country, but also of democracy, of the more open lifestyle they'd enjoyed, the more free press they'd enjoyed, the more free conversation they'd enjoyed and really have enjoyed over the last decade, much more so than Russia. And so they know they're fighting for something that's existential. It matters to them and it matters to them a lot more than it matters to the Russians who are coming over the border, especially some of the younger conscripts who seem, at least in the initial wave, didn't understand why they were there at all. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. It's difficult to think about anything other than the war in Ukraine at the moment, and that's what my main conversation this week with Anne Applebaum is going to be about. But I did want to take a moment to address two upcoming elections in Europe. It looked as though each of those might turn out to be a hinge election, one that really radically changes the political trajectory of those countries. But with a few weeks left in the campaigns, it looks as though they have turned out to be quite boring and predictable, which is on the whole a good thing in one country and a very bad thing in the other. In France, Emmanuel Macron has had a slightly mixed record in office. He certainly has dashed some of the huge hopes that many French voters had in him when he was elected five years ago. But though he is underwater in his approval ratings, they are far higher than those of his last three or four predecessors. They are much, much higher than those of his immediate predecessor, François Hollande. And as a result, the horror scenarios which many worried about have not come to pass. Marine Le Pen is likely to make it into the second round once again, but she does not appear to be likely to beat Emmanuel Macron in the second round. And Eric Zemmour, the far-right polemicist who has outflanked Le Pen on the extreme right, does not look as though he is going to come second or perhaps even third, perhaps not even fourth in the first round of the election. It certainly is looking very unlikely that he will be the president of France. So at a time when every election still does pose a real danger that a deeply liberal, anti-democratic candidate might come to office, the fact that Macron is now very likely to cruise to re-election is, I think, a clear win for liberal democracy. Not so, unfortunately, in Hungary. While the opposition, after years of being deeply divided and making many uh, mistakes, finally seemed to be getting its act together in the run-up to the parliamentary elections that are about to be held there. The opposition managed to unite. They selected a former small-town mayor who seemed poised to be able to appeal to some of the politically more moderate Hungarians to not just mobilize the opposition to Orban in the big city like Budapest, but also persuade some of Orban's former voters to join the opposition. But if the latest opinion polls are to be believed, it is now unfortunately looking quite unlikely that the Hungarian opposition will be able to beat Orban. This is, of course, in part due to the control that Orban has over the institutions of the country, over the media in the country. This is not going to be a fair election. 
But even so, there seemed to be a little bit of hope six months ago, nine months ago, that the opposition might somehow be able to win the election and either force Orban from office or force him to abandon the pretense of democracy. It now looks as though Orban, with his unfair control over much of the media and much of the political system, is actually going to win a majority of the vote. So what we have here, when you look at it from the perspective, from the frame of populism, is a kind of stalemate in which countries which are already controlled by authoritarian populists continue to drift in an authoritarian direction. But countries where populists have not yet gained power, like France, are continuing to resist the populist onslaught. My guest today is my friend and colleague, Anne Applebaum. Anne is a senior fellow at the Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. She's a staff writer at the Atlantic. We are colleagues in many different fora. And she's the author of a number of really important books that speak directly to this moment, including Gulag, A History, Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, and Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe. We talked, of course, about the war in Ukraine and particularly about three important topics, about what the dictatorship will look like in Russia after the way it is being transformed by this war, the prospects for a real Ukrainian victory, what it would take for Ukraine to win and what victory would actually consist of, and finally, what the broader strategy might be that democracies should pursue to defend themselves and protect their values against the global autocratic resurgence. Anne Applebaum, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Yasha. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and to have you on the podcast. So it's now been nearly a month since the beginning of the war. What is the state of the war today and how is that different from what we might have expected four weeks ago? So we know exactly what was expected four weeks ago by the Russians. We know because the U.S. Defense Department had a leak of some kind. There was a very specific battle plan. It involved the taking of Kiev in three to four days, and then the conquest of all of Ukraine, including Western Ukraine, all the way up to the Polish border within four to six weeks. We know that after three or four days, there were articles written celebrating the conquest of Ukraine and the reunification of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine, one of which accidentally appeared on a Russian website and was quickly taken down. So we know what the plan was. And I have to say that in Washington, in the two or three weeks in the run-up to the war, that was pretty much what most American analysts also thought would happen. I got into an argument with one of them. It was right before the Munich Security Conference. So it was about a week before the invasion. And he told me that that was what was going to happen. And I said, well, don't you think the Ukrainians are going to fight back? And he said to me, you live in a bubble. You only know your Ukrainian friends and you don't see the wider picture. And I said to him, maybe you live in a bubble because you read Russian military documents all day long. This is an American stipulate, not a Russian. Anyway, I was right. <laughs> partly right. You know, the war is not over yet. But clearly, the plan was based on Putin's assumption and the assumptions of many other people that the Ukrainians would not fight. 
Putin thought that because he thinks Ukraine is not a real country, these are not people who will defend themselves, they're not invested enough in the nation to defend it. The Americans thought that because they were looking at Russian estimates of how many weapons they have and the Russians so outnumber the Ukrainians, both in amount of just pure stuff they have and also numbers of people. What nobody really counted on was, first of all, the Ukrainian army having fought over the last eight years. There are a lot of veterans. There's a lot of military experience. It's not just one of those post-Soviet armies that, you know, has never done anything. Also that the ongoing eight-year war with Russia had changed Ukraine. Ukrainians understood both from the Russian occupation of Crimea and from the Russian occupation of Donetsk, those Donetsk regions, that Russian occupation would be an end of their lives as they know it. They understood that this would be the end of not just Ukraine as a country, but also of democracy, of the more open lifestyle they'd enjoyed, the more free press they'd enjoyed, the more free conversation they'd enjoyed and really have enjoyed over the last decade, much more so than Russia. And so they know they're fighting for something that's existential. It matters to them. And it matters to them a lot more than it matters to the Russians who are coming over the border, especially some of the younger conscripts who seem, at least in the initial wave, didn't understand why they were there at all. So it really is a war where what you're fighting for and whether or not you care about it matters a lot. And the fact that Kiev is still standing and the country is not conquered is a testament to that. So clearly one of the real things that mattered in at least so far allowing Ukrainians to defend their country very effectively is the will to fight, the leadership, which has been, I think, more courageous and inspirational than we might have imagined. But it has to go beyond that, right? So clearly Ukraine's army is a lot stronger and more professional than many had assumed. Russia's army also seems to be a lot weaker and more sclerotic than many assumed. Yes. I mean, I think what we're watching is the effect of corruption. You know, we know how it affects the Russian economy, but it also affects Russian society and Russian bureaucracy, and it also affects the Russian military. It seems very likely that Russian generals were stealing and they were lying about how many troops they really had and how much stuff they really had and how well it was being maintained and cared for. Money was no doubt being spent, but some of it clearly disappeared. Because things that they were supposed to have, they don't have, including troops who were meant to be there and somehow they aren't. And we thought that the 150,000 troops gathered around the borders of Ukraine in the run-up to the war were all professional soldiers. And it turns out that was, for example, not true. But that was how they were listed in Russian documents. And so somebody was lying. And so this is a political system that is based on a really profound corruption on the assumption that you can, whoever you are, whatever your job is, you have the right to steal as much as you possibly can to get it out of the country, to buy a house in the south of France or whatever you can afford. And everybody does it, including clearly some of the army leadership. And I think the failure of the Russian army is a reflection of the society more broadly. And so it feels to me that when you were at the Munich Security Conference and this American official was saying, well, obviously Russia is going to be able to conquer most of Ukraine very quickly, that obviously determined what the United States and Western countries thought the aims of a war were. It was perhaps to inflict a little bit of damage on Russia, perhaps to make the war last a little bit longer, but there didn't seem to be a realistic prospect of actually allowing Ukraine to win the war in a meaningful sense. You've recently argued that 
it is now time to shed those assumptions and actually play for keeps, actually empower Ukraine to win the war. What would it look like for Ukraine to win the war? And what kind of action does it take from Western nations and others to empower Ukraine to do so? Yes. So that article was an argument for a shift in thinking. You're exactly right. The Americans believed that it would be over quickly. You'll remember that they even offered Zelensky to help him escape the country. He refused. If you famously saying, I don't need a ride out, I need more ammunition. And getting not just the White House, but the rest of the West to shift their thinking away from how do we you know, damage Russia and make this as painless as possible and end the war quickly, to understanding that Ukrainians can win and to begin to think about what winning looks like and to help them get there. I am not an expert in military strategy. I am told that there are more sophisticated weapons that we can get to the Ukrainians. You know, I will stay away from the subject of whether we should intervene ourselves because I don't think that's realistic at this point. There is too much fear of Russian escalation and the use of nuclear weapons in Washington. You know, we might regret that that fear exists, but it's there. But I think, first of all, through more and better weapons, through more and and more dramatic humanitarian aid, you know, where is the Berlin airlift of today? Where are the, you know, enormous supplies of food and help that we should be offering to Mariupol and other cities that are under siege? I'd like to see more of that. I would like to see sanctions being targeted more specifically at the war effort. And so, you know, a temporary ban on buying Russian oil and gas, you know, particularly now that it's getting a little warmer and gas is not so crucial in Europe, would be a huge statement and it would be one that would be felt quickly by the Russian budget. So we were, we've successfully frozen their foreign reserves, but they're still making billions every day from selling natural resources. And ending that is one of the few things we could do that would have an instant effect. And the sanctions as they are now will have a longer term effect over many months, but that doesn't help us in the next two or three weeks. And then I'd say even more than that, you know, beginning to think about, beginning to game out what a post-war Ukraine looks like. And I admit that this is difficult. How do we ensure Ukraine's borders? How do we give the Ukrainians some sense of security? How do we make sure that Russia doesn't come back again? What are the deals that can be done? I mean, people talk about giving Putin an off-ramp, but I don't think that's exactly what we're talking about. Putin can decide what the narrative is inside Russia. So he can say, well, I wasn't really trying to conquer all of Ukraine. All I wanted was I don't know, I wanted recognition of Crimea or something. I think he could do that if he wanted to. Of course, for the Ukrainians at this point, offering him any concessions at all is going to be very difficult politically for Zelensky. There are other politicians in Ukraine who are already starting to say, you know, over our dead bodies, you know, not one inch of territory will be given up. And I have to say, you know, if you look at how the Russians are behaving in the territories that they've conquered, you can understand why. One of the things that to me as a historian is really horrifying, all kind of bone chilling, is watching the Russians do in eastern Ukrainian cities exactly what they did in eastern Poland, in Hungary, in the Baltic states, in East Germany, right after World War II, namely decapitating the top of society, arresting the mayors, arresting museum curators, intellectuals, journalists, and then using random terror on everybody else. This was the Soviet occupation. This is how it was conducted in Central Europe after the war at the end of 44 and 45. And they seem to have the same playbook and they're doing it again. And so, of course, for the Ukrainians, giving up any territory means that you're giving people over to a regime of terror. And that has to be very difficult for any politician. 
I want to understand more about that parallel before we get back to how exactly Ukraine might win the war. You know, there was a very clear and specific goal in the actions of the Soviet Union in the post-World War II period, which you've described brilliantly in one of your books. They wanted to erect a communist regime. And, you know, part of the point was that it would be subservient to the will of Moscow and the Kremlin, but part of the point was a set of ideological goals uh, for what those societies would look like internally. Um, you know, what is the nature of the Putin regime today? It started off as just a kind of kleptocratic dictatorship. There's an argument being made, at least it's a strong argument, perhaps it's a convincing argument, that Russia is quickly turning into a kind of totalitarian society. But it is a totalitarian society without a very strong ideology. It does not have the strength of ideology that something like the Third Reich had, and it does not have the kind of strength of ideology that the Soviet Union had. So I guess I have a double question for you. It's like, hey, what is happening inside Russia? What do you think the shape of that society is going to be like after the war if Putin stays in power? But B, how does that create a disanalogy to what happened after World War II? Because one of the things that made that work was that you had some domestic elites who actually believed in the communist ideology, that you had some sort of set of texts that you could impose as the sort of supposed governing ideals of a society. Today, Russia lacks all of that. So what would sort of following the same playbook without that ideological foundation look like? So I have actually been arguing for about 15 years that there is a kind of ideology of Putinism. There is a theory of history. There is an economic theory. There is a kind of politics. The theory of history is that Russia was robbed at the end of the Soviet Union when it broke up. The 1990s were a disaster in which during a period when the West sought to destroy Russia, Putin then began to rebuild Russia. You know, so there's a kind of resentment and nostalgia that work together to explain everything that's happened in the last 30 years. There is an economic theory, which is essentially, you know, in a political theory, essentially there's kind of fake democracy and fake capitalism. So there are some of the forms of capitalism, but in fact, the economy is controlled from above by a group of oligarchs. You know, there appear to be democratic elections, but in fact, the outcomes are determined also. You know, you have a managed economy and a managed democracy, and there's an elite behind it who controls things, you know, sort of puppet masters behind the scenes. And this, of course, reflects very much a KGB way of thinking about the world. And this is actually how Putin thinks the world works. And it's the system he's tried to create inside Russia. And so when he sees, for example, democratic activists demonstrating in Russia, he doesn't think that those are spontaneous grassroots people. You know, those are Russians representing a different point of view. He thinks, oh, they're organized by the CIA. So he doesn't believe in any spontaneity, in any natural activity, in anything grassroots. The society is managed and controlled in that way, and that most of the energy of the propaganda is not so much for things as against things. So they're against Western democracy. They constantly seek to expose hypocrisy as they see it. They're looking constantly to expose and undermine Western politics and European politics and Western and international institutions, including all the institutions set up after the Second World War that were designed to prevent situations exactly like this one. So the language of human rights and the language of negotiation and laws on war and so on. They're setting themselves up as a kind of realist power that is opposed to all those things. And inside Ukraine, you know, years ago, they might have done more. They will find a very few collaborators. They will find people who will collaborate, not because they believe in the ideology as such, but because they 
understand that they too can be part of this elite that makes money out of the system. I did read that one potential collaborator in one of the Eastern Ukrainian cities has been shot by Ukrainians. So it's much more dangerous thing to be than you would think. But there will be people who collaborate for that reason. There will be people who admire the cynicism of it. Oh, these people understand how the world really works. They don't believe all this bullshit about human rights. This is a realist way. You know, we need to align ourselves with the real power. And so that will attract maybe some people inside Ukraine, although, as I said, not very many. In fact, so far, surprisingly little. But it will appeal to people in Russia and it will appeal to some in Europe and lots of people around the world. This is just realism. This is how the world works. And if you hit your star to it, there's money to be made. You know, it's not an ideology in the old sort of Marxist-Leninism style. It doesn't have an elaborate text to go along with it. But there's a kind of set of ideas. People understand what they are and people act in accordance with them. It's true that up until a year or two ago, really, Putin's success in a way was that he was able to maintain the system, but it allowed for some freedom inside Russia. In other words, there was a kind of system whereby, you know, you could have your independent newspaper, you could be an independent politician, as long as not that many people read your paper and not that many people voted for you, it was fine. And the only people who got in trouble were the people who accidentally or on purpose got too many readers or too many followers. And so Alexei Navalny became a problem for Putin because his language and rhetoric was aimed exactly at this cynicism and exactly at the corruption. And lots of people immediately understood that he was right. And so he was twice poisoned and now is in prison. You know, the same is true of the various independent outlets. As soon as they had too much influence or they were too popular, then they would be undermined or pushed abroad or put out of business. But there was enough freedom in Russia that people didn't feel like they had to escape. You know, there was art shows in Moscow and there were theater productions and there was some kind of public life, even in the provinces. I mean, literally in the last three weeks, that may have now ended for good. Your acquaintance and mine, who was on your podcast recently, Zhenya Albats, is still there. She's a liberal Russian, has been anti-Putin from the beginning. And I talked to her a couple of days ago and she said to me, you know, really everybody she knows is gone. Everybody's left. All the journalists, all the activists, all the artists, lots of business people. You can't fly very many places out of Moscow right now, but you can fly to Yerevan in Armenia. And the flights to Yerevan are all packed with like young guys in hoodies with expensive laptops because the whole upper middle class or whatever it is, middle class, tech class, they all see what the writing on the wall and they're all leaving. So you have this huge exodus out of Russia. I mean, it's nothing like the Ukrainian exodus, but it's an exodus of anybody who understands and has ways to read the news, anybody who objects to this war, anybody who thinks their lives are going to be unbearable because of sanctions, all kinds of reasons. But kind of liberal Moscow and liberal Russia is now trying to leave. Yeah, so I'm trying to make sense of what that actually looks like as a society. And I don't think the answers to that are obvious. So the most salient models I have of different kinds of dictatorships are on the one side, something much more like what you were describing Russia feeling like five or 10 years ago, which is to say, hey, we have a strong man in power. And you can't do anything that endangers the rule of this dictator or upsets the people who are closest to him because you are exposing their corruption or doing things that embarrass them, doing things that endanger their interests. But you can sort of go about your day-to-day -day life not really having to think about politics. So A, if you're April, you are fine, right? Like it's perfectly acceptable in this society to say, I don't care about politics. 
I have my family and I play soccer on the weekends and I go bowling with my friends and politics. I don't really think about politics very much. That's a perfectly acceptable answer in Moscow 2010. It's a perfectly acceptable answer in most dictatorships in the world, right? Nothing suspect about that. In a way, dictatorships want to demobilize the population. They want the population to say, I'm just not interested in politics, right? There's a second kind of regime which we've seen in the 20th century, which dominated in many ways the history of the 20th century, which is totalitarian, which I understand as being much more active, right? Having a very clear positive ideology in which it is actively trying to indoctrinate the population. And so in those regimes to say, I just don't care about politics is actually suspect, right? You need to parrot the line of regime more actively. It's not just that students in school are fed certain lies or that they don't talk much about politics or something like that. They are meant to be members of these youth movements, which actively read the foundational texts of the ideology, which actively have to pay allegiance to the ideals of the regime. And even just the act of having parents who don't send you to one of those youth groups is seen as deeply suspect and a kind of potential act of rebellion. It feels to me like what you're describing as being emerging in Russia now is a kind of strange hybrid in which Putin is trying to achieve the level of control that is more typical of totalitarian regimes, but without having that proactive mobilization of all of society in the service of some kind of ideology. And while I take your point about the negative ideology about the beliefs that Putin has and the way that it makes his actions as a leader of a state predictable to some extent, that I agree with. None of those points of belief you listed are, I think, a potential basis for mass mobilization of society in the service of some kind of ideal, and the regime is too cynical for that. So how do these components go together? Is that a new type of dictatorship? Will Putin be pushed towards inventing an ideology? Will he be pushed towards relenting some of the control? It's not clear to me how those things are actually going to work together in practice. Those are all really excellent points. I mean, you're right that what has succeeded for Putin up until now has been actually the deliberate creation of apathy. You know, Russian propaganda has been designed for the last decade not to mobilize people to do X or Y, but to make people feel like, ugh, I don't want anything to do with any of this and I'm just better out of it. Whether that's through the constant and cynical undermining of you know Western language and Western ideas and so on. So look, you think there's an alternative in Western Europe? There's not. You know, you think there's something better out there, it's democracy, there's not. And also the elimination of any alternative to Putin. So people, you know, they look around and they don't see anything else. You know, what is there? There's Putin or there's chaos. There's Putin or there's, you know, war. And that's all been very deliberate. But I agree with you that that is now a kind of problem for the regime. And they are actually trying to solve it in a somewhat strange way. So one of the oddities about the war was that in the run up to the war, there was no discussion of the war. On the contrary, Russian television was telling people, oh, this Western propaganda, this American intelligence about coming military operations, that's all a lie. It's not true. So they didn't build up support. There's no mass creation of hatred of Ukraine or whatever, which would have been very difficult, but they didn't do that. And even in the first few days of the war, they didn't say they were at war. In fact, they still never said they're at war. They say it's a special military operation and they don't tell people what's actually happening there. Instead, what they've done is they've created this very strange Z campaign. You may have seen these 
people wearing Zs on their gym clothes or people painting Z on the side of their car. This is the Z that was painted on the side of the cars and the tanks that were headed for Ukraine. And so they've sort of taken that and made it into a symbol. I find it strange in a number of ways. One is that it seems to me that they're using that instead of the Russian flag. So why aren't they putting the Russian flag on this operation? Because they're a little nervous about it. (laughs) It's not going the way it was supposed to go. You can abandon the Z, but you can't abandon the flag. That's right. That's right. If they decide at some point that the Z thing isn't going very well, they can just go away and, you know, we can move on. And we haven't involved the honor and glory of Mother Russia and so on. And, you know, even Putin's name isn't on it. You know, it's just this strange Z, which, by the way, is not a letter in the Russian alphabet. It's a Western letter. Russia has that sound, but it's written differently. So it's very strange looking and it seems very artificial. There are these kind of artificial videos that are very fascist looking, but don't seem very authentic. And there was a big rally at a stadium and that also didn't seem terribly authentic. So they're creating a a sort of fake totalitarian. I mean, just like everything in Russia is fake. You know, they have fake elections and they have fake capitalism and now they have fake totalitarianism as well. And they may think that just doing that kind of veneer of propaganda will be enough to scare people. So the point is just to scare people, make them stay home, don't have them come out into the street. And it may be that they don't want to motivate people to do anything. You know, they just want them to shut up. You know, they want to make sure there's no rebellion, there's no protest, you know, nothing goes wrong, you know, and these people are just stay home and are silent. Because particularly as if economic sanctions do kick in, they'll want that. So in my view, this is a problem that the Russians themselves haven't solved. You know, now that they are abandoning this kind of managed democracy, this kind of faked democracy that they've had for two decades, what replaces it and what's the point of it? So is the point just to control people? Is the point to send a message to the West? Is the point to motivate people? I mean, again, they're still not telling people that there's a war on. They're still not saying, you know, this is a big national effort and we must all pitch in. You know, they're still not calling for massive contributions to the war campaign, or they're not doing what the Ukrainians are doing. You know, the Ukrainians have asked every male person between the ages of 18 and 60 to stay inside the country and to help the war effort. And the Russians aren't doing that. They have started talking about wider conscription, but they haven't done any of these draconian things yet. And that makes me think that they don't know. So how does that relate to this question of an off-ramp for Putin? As long as Putin stays in complete control of a country and feels confident that he can stay in complete control of a country, he might be able to declare victory on any point and say the special military operation has succeeded. Wonderful. Here's whatever treaty we've come to with Ukraine. Let's celebrate and move on and, you know, distract attention somewhere else. But that assumes either objectively that Putin's rule is not in danger and that there aren't people within Russia who are thinking, what adventure have we just been taking on? What did we sacrifice all of the money we've just lost for? Why, as Evgenia Albert said when she was on the podcast, is my wife sort of angry at me because suddenly Prada and Versace are gone from Moscow and our life is a lot less good than it was? Or at the very least, subjectively, Putin has to feel that he can agree to what objectively would be a humiliating deal try to sell it to the Russian public in this way without endangering his own rule. Do we know anything about whether Putin's command of the Russian state apparatus 
is sufficiently firm and whether he feels that it is sufficiently firm. Because if one of those conditions is not true, it seems to me that Putin is not going to choose any form of off-ramp. So he's clearly paranoid about something. The fact that he's appearing at those long tables, you know, 10 meters away from his generals, you know, either he's scared of getting COVID from them or he's scared of assassination. You know, neither one is a good sign. And he's making these paranoid ranting appearances on television. I mean, those are not signs of somebody who's 100% confident that everything's going really well. And I would say actually the same thing in this weird Z campaign. You know, that doesn't also look like what a healthy, secure dictator does. On the other hand, from everything that we know about how it works, I do think that he controls the narrative inside the country. So if he decides that it's time to end the war and that they can claim some kind of achievement, then he will still be able to do it. I say, again, they've not told the Russians they're at war. They've not said there's a major campaign on. They've not told them that 10,000 Russian soldiers have died. They haven't told people any of that. And so they're right now still at the point where he could say, I've achieved X or Y, it stops. And I think he could still do it. He could pull them out. And he hasn't put Russia's name on the line. He hasn't put his own name on the line. All these things that I've pointed out before are the things that give me some hope that if he wanted to end it, he could end it. You know, what I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows, and certainly none of us can know, is what's in his head about how existential or how important this war is to him. You know, it's been pretty clear to me for years, actually, that he perceived Ukraine as a kind of existential threat in a way that was very hard for outsiders to understand. But Ukrainian democracy was something that he took personally, you know, it was kind of insult. You know, here's our former colony, and they've chosen a different political system, and they've chosen to be integrated with Europe. And he understood that as an attack on him and his autocracy and his authority. You know, he's made that clear for a decade. But the question is, can he decide that he can tolerate Ukrainian democracy after all? Can he revert back even to the position he seemed to have around 2010 or 2011 when he seemed initially willing for Ukraine to have some kind of relationship with the EU? Initially, he seemed to be in favor of a Ukrainian trade agreement, for example. That was the first step that Ukraine took towards a relationship with Europe. And he seemed like that was okay. He didn't object to it. And then he changed his mind. He decided he objected to it. And really, since then, it was that objection that created the backlash that then created the Maidan and the revolution of 2014. So the question is whether he can return to that previous level or whether this is now so encoded in his brain by the two years he spent in COVID isolation, reading weird bits of history written by God knows who, and he's now on some mission to recreate the Russian empire. I just don't know. He's certainly been capable in the past of making rational decisions based on relative understanding of risks and so on. I mean, he's never been a huge risk taker. Most of the things that he's done, even when they've surprised us, have been well within the realm of whether it was the invasion of Syria, which he did knowing full well there would be no response, the invasion of Crimea, which he did was a total surprise to everybody, almost everybody, actually, not the Polish government, but almost everybody. You know, all of that was calculated. Even his, for example, the attack on the U.S. election, the use of disinformation, you know, or the support for far-right parties in Europe, all that was a kind of calculated risk. This seems to me now at a new level, and whether he's now crossed into some other realm of thinking, I just don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about Russia's actions over the last 10 years. I feel like they kept surprising many observers because Putin 
kept doing things that were more immoral and more violating of the basic rules of the international political settlement than people expected. But none of them actually involved a huge amount of risk for him or for Russia. So I think sort of if you disentangle those two strands of what might constrain somebody's action, what imposes risk on yourself and your country on the one hand, and sort of where are the moral lines or just the official political lines, Putin has always been more willing to cross the moral and the political lines, but he actually hasn't taken on vast risk for his own country. And I guess one question about the war in Ukraine is, did he just miscalculate and he thought that the war in Ukraine wouldn't be a huge risk either, because within three days he would be in Kiev and all of European countries kept making excuses for everything else he had done across the world. And clearly the appetite for sanctions was limited. You know, it's not that he was willing to take on much bigger risk. He just didn't think that the risk was that big. Or was he actually willing to say, this is so important to me, but I'm willing to take a completely different level of risk. And I don't think that it's obvious which of those two it was. I can only guess... My guess is that on three counts, he's had very bad information for the last several years. Number one, on the nature of modern Ukraine, about which he knows nothing. He's never been there. He doesn't know any of its leaders. Nobody else around him does either. They've been telling themselves for a decade that Ukraine is a fake country and they don't have any idea what it's really like. And here it's like Shakespeare, you know, he's a leader isolated from reality. He's surrounded by yes men. Probably everybody around him was also saying Ukraine is a fake country. And so he believed that. And I think similarly, I think probably thanks to Trump, he believed that the West was more divided and less likely to support Ukraine than he expected. He watched over four years of the Trump administration as Trump attacked NATO and talked about taking American troops out. And a lot of the Republican Party supported Trump in those efforts or anyway, didn't push back. And there was a lot of dissatisfaction with American leadership in Europe and so on. He watched all that happen and he probably thought, well, this is not a united alliance. They're not that interested in helping the Ukrainians. They won't do anything. And I think finally, the U.S., I'm sure he believed, you know, his propaganda and the propaganda that he can hear coming from Fox News and other places that, you know, Joe Biden is a weak elderly person who's really out of it and he's got dementia and he's not really paying attention to anything and he's not in control. I'm sure those three miscalculations were part of his misreading of the situation. And again, I, you know, I imagine some of his information comes from the US media and from European media. And so if you listen to French or German media, you can hear a lot of whining about America and American leadership. And if you listen to American media, you can hear a lot of stuff about how Joe Biden has dementia. So he informed himself through those partisan sources and miscalculated. That would be my guess. Given the deep reluctance of European countries, especially Western European countries, less so Central European countries, to recognize that the holiday from history has ended and that Russia poses a real danger and the sort of deep economic ties that both some of the old political elites like Gerhard Schröder have to Russia and the insistence of parts of a car industry and so on to continue having these links with Russia. You know, I was also surprised by the willingness of European countries to actually give a robust response in terms of economic sanctions. So I think it would have been easy to assume for informed observers as well that the response from Europe would be a lot less strong and a lot less serious than it's turned out to be. And it's still early days. It may get less serious. I mean, also remember, from Putin's point of view, look, he bought the former German chancellor. He bought one of the leaders of the French center right. He had 
people all over London, Abramovich, who's probably one of his so-called wallets, you know, people who controls his money, you know, was this celebrated figure in London, owned the most popular football club. He had all this influence all over the world. Why wouldn't he believe that that mattered? So let me get back to Ukraine and the potential for a deal here, which is to say, you know, what does it look like for Ukraine to win? I mean, one model for winning a war is you invade the country that first attacked you and you get them to agree to a total surrender. That's how we dealt with the Third Reich. That's clearly not going to happen. Nobody is talking about Ukrainian troops sort of making forays into Russian territory, let alone to Moscow, right? So victory would have to involve some kind of deal. Given that Putin's appetite for risk seems to have grown somewhat, given that it does appear that Ukraine is at least very important to his goals, given that he will probably be licking his wounds and plotting revenge if it proves to be possible. What kind of deal could give Ukraine the assurances and the security it needs that all of his nightmares not just going to start again three or five or ten years from now? I mean, that's the million-dollar question. I don't have an answer that I can give you, but it'll be absolutely the case. But I mean, Ukraine has started to hint at what it's looking for, which is some kind of status whereby it has, if not a NATO security guarantee, then some security guarantee from some neighbors, maybe from Poland and Scandinavia, you know, maybe from some coalition of the willing in Europe. They want some reassurance that this won't happen again soon. You know, they will need, obviously, Russian troops to withdraw. As I said, I don't want to speculate about a border deal because I feel that's for the Ukrainians to accept and not for me to tell them what to do. But maybe there would be some border deal, you know, or some some deal about Crimea or something. Maybe there would be some deal about lifting sanctions. Maybe the West lifts sanctions if X and Y and Z happen. So there would have to be some negotiation about borders, about the safety of Ukraine, about the neutrality of Ukraine, and about the sanction regime. And somewhere in that mix, there might be something that after some period of time, you know, and a failure, Putin might decide he can accept. So you hinted earlier at some skepticism you have about how serious Western Europe is going to be about maintaining these sanctions for as long as may be needed. I have been inspired by the response in Western Europe. I've been positively surprised by the response in Germany. But like you, I worry that there's a huge difference between what these countries are willing to do in the opening phase of a brutal war a few hundred miles from their own border and what that would look like in three or five years, whether Germany is actually willing to end its holiday from history, whether Italy is actually willing to wean itself off of Russian gas over the next years and stop the current state of affairs, which is essentially that if Vladimir Putin decides to go for confrontation with Europe and with Italy, then a bunch of Italian pensioners die come February or March because they can't heat the homes. So how optimistic are you about how Europe will act in the coming years? And what should European leaders, in fact, do to make sure that we contain the danger from Russia in a sustainable way? So I do agree with you that the transformation in Germany is remarkable. I wrote this at the time, you know, things that seemed impossible three days earlier suddenly became possible because of the war and because of Zelensky's eloquence and because the Ukrainians show how much they value our values. And I think that moved people a lot. And public opinion has a big impact on politics, at least in our countries, and made a huge difference. 
I'm particularly worried about the oil and gas question because I do think that it's going to become clear, maybe even quite soon, that we have to cut off at least Russian oil and maybe Russian gas if we want to stop the war. In other words, the war might require that the Russian regime ceases to have any way of earning money. And that would inflict a lot of disruption in European politics. The French have an election. Italian politics is always pretty nutty. The Germans wouldn't like it either. And so I'm worried that that would lead to some dissension and division inside the West in the event of Russian use of chemical or, God forbid, nuclear weapons, I can imagine divisions about what the response should be there. I'm not privy to any private conversations about it. I'm sure there are some, lots of them, in fact, taking place among the main NATO countries. But, you know, there will be differences of opinion as to what we should do and how we should respond. That's pretty clear to me. And so I do worry about the stability of the coalition over time. I mean, of course, paradoxically, the worse that Russia behaves, and if they do use some weapon of mass destruction, that will also have a galvanizing effect on Western public opinion, too. You know, there has been this, particularly in Italy and France, it's quite far away and it doesn't really matter, but a Russian use of chemical weapons would make people think that it matters. As I said, I just worry about the ability of leaders and democracies being able to take a big economic collapse if that's what this war causes. As a final question, Anne, you know, I read this morning that there's an initiative in the Bulgarian parliament to stop the heinous practice in some EU countries of people from outside the EU being able to invest in the country, often by buying up some real estate, actually relatively small ticket stuff, and becoming eligible for EU citizenship as a result. That's been one of the ways in which Russian oligarchs and dodgy oligarchs from other countries around the world have been able to gain EU citizenship by their way into EU citizenship and therefore protect themselves in important ways. It seems to me you'll likely agree that that is one important loophole that we have to stop to make it harder for those who profit from these corrupt regimes to go and enjoy their wealth around the world. But what would a broader strategy of pushback against the authoritarian resurgence look like? What would a broader strategy of making sure that democracies actually protect their values and take the fight to the Putins and the other dictators of the world look like? So I think there are three elements of a pushback. Number one is the one you just hinted at, which is a ending kleptocracy, not just kind of changing a few rules and making it harder, but really just put this whole thing to an end. End these practices of giving people visas, shut down the tax havens, you know, shut down the anonymous companies and the shell companies. I mean, these things only exist because they're created legally. And so we can uncreate them. And of course, they can still have them in Dubai or wherever, but it would make a huge difference if U.S. citizens were not allowed to invest in them and U.S. lawyers and accountants were not allowed to deal with them. That would end a lot of it overnight. And so really putting an absolute end to international kleptocracy is number one. That's not just about Russia. It's about lots of other countries, too, as you know. Number two, you know, we need to completely rethink the way that we communicate with the world. We in the West, we are very lazy about assuming that everybody else just accepts our values or they automatically think that borders are inviolable and that's some kind of rule created by the UN. The UN doesn't work anymore. The UN has been systematically undermined, especially by China, but also by Russia and the other autocracies. You know, there is no liberal world order. The only world order there is, is the one that we can create and define and explain. 
explain. In the U.S., I've argued that we should think very differently about how we manage, you know, for example, our foreign broadcasters and our understanding of foreign countries. There's a whole division. I think it's part of the CIA or some piece of the U.S. intelligence community, which analyzes foreign broadcasts and media, but then keeps all the analysis secret. You know, that kind of junk is over. We need to do all that openly. We need to have a much better understanding of who the Russians are, how the Russian internet works, who we can speak to there, who are our possible allies. You know, they might not only be the liberals in Moscow, there might be some other people. And the same is true in China and the same is true elsewhere. So in other words, we need a completely different understanding of how we communicate, how we talk to the outside world, how we put out information. And then thirdly, I think there is some rethinking of military strategy. And this is not my forte. There are other people who will understand it better. But one of the reasons Russia invaded Ukraine was because Ukraine didn't offer sufficient deterrence. Deterrence was a great idea. Deterrence was what kept the Cold War relatively peaceful. There was no war in Europe because of deterrence. And so we now need to look around at other vulnerable countries and places, including Europe itself, and think about how do we deter invasion? How do we prevent it? And part of preventing invasion is the investment in weapons. And I know that sounds kind of paradoxical and Dr. Strangelove and so on, but unfortunately it's true. I mean, I had this argument on German television about two weeks before the war. Everybody, of course, in Germany wants peace. You know, we want dialogue. Okay, you want peace, then you arm Ukraine. <laughs> if Ukraine had been armed in a way that made the Russians frightened, there would have been no invasion and there would be no war. And so we need to rethink how we use our incredibly advanced weaponry and the amazing U.S. military and how we deploy it in a way that really does encourage peace. And so I would say those are the three areas that we need to think about. I mean, I should say the question of autocracy is complicated because not all autocracies are equal and we will have some alliances with some of them. That's going to be inevitable. But thinking harder about how they work together, how we can divide them, how we can prevent them from acting as a network as they're beginning to do now, that has to be part of our thinking too. And thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.